Welcome to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Social Media Editor Dr. Sarah Wright. We're bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Valerie Parker. Val, we are so excited to speak with you today. Val is a clinical professor at The Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine, and is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and is also boarded in Small Animal Internal Medicine and Nutrition. Val is also a guest editor for our December JAFMA supplement, Emerging Topics in Nutrition. In this episode, we're going to talk about her own manuscript in the supplement, Home-Cooked Diets Cost More Than Commercially Prepared Dry Kibble Diets for Dogs with Chronic Enteropathies. Dr. Parker, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your manuscript discusses the cost of home-cooked diets versus commercially prepared dry kibble diets for dogs with chronic enteropathies. Can you give our listeners a bit of background information on what inspired you to pursue this project? Sure. Um, I, first of all, would be remiss not to mention several of my co-authors who uh, laid a little bit of the groundwork for this manuscript. Dr. Shepard and Dr. Delaney had previously published a few abstracts with a similar topic. And what really prompted me to want to take it a step further and make a full study and manuscript out of it was that when we talk to clients frequently, they have a lot of sticker shock when it comes to purchasing veterinary therapeutic diets for their dogs for a variety of these diseases, especially chronic enteropathies. And I hear day in, day out that they'd rather feed home cooked because it will be so much cheaper. And it really got me thinking, well, is that even true? I mean, we're making some assumptions here, but do we know that to be true or not? And so we decided to take on this study to, to be able to have some evidence to support our claims that home-cooked diets are or are not less expensive than feeding a veterinary diet for dogs with, in this specific instance, GI disease, but I think it does have some carryover into other diseases as well. I never really thought about that before. And my own cat has renal disease, so she's on a renal diet. And honestly, I never thought about home cooking, but after reading her manuscript, definitely going to be sticking to the commercially prepared diet, I believe, for her. So how does this manuscript complement the other manuscripts in the December JAMA supplement, Emerging Topics in Nutrition? Um, I think we got a really great mix of manuscripts in the December issue um, with uh, actually more than one study related to home cooking, which I think is a really nice um, compliment because it, it is becoming so prevalent that pet owners do want to feed home cooked diets to their pets for so many reasons. Um, and so I think that this is just one more manuscript that gives veterinarians more comfort and confidence speaking to pet owners about whether a home-cooked diet is the right best thing for that pet or not. And what I think that my fellow nutritionists and I would really like to emphasize that no matter what, if home cooking is something that an owner wants to um, pursue, that it has to be done correctly. That is that is the single most important takeaway point regarding either manuscript regarding home cooking is that if it's going to be done, it should be done with the guidance of a board-certified veterinary nutritionist to avoid potential, potentially fatal consequences. Unfortunately, we can see anywhere from mild deficiencies to severe life-threatening deficiencies when people are feeding home-cooked diets without guidance and feeding unbalanced home-cooked diets. And I'd say that's especially that's especially true as it relates to young growing animals. Um, those are animals that I have seen 
just horrible consequences in, but also in adult animals that have been fed unbalanced diets for many years. Um, the biggest the biggest medical concern that I worry about um, is long-term calcium deficiency, long-term secondary nutritional hyperparathyroidism. And we see these animals coming in with diffuse osteopenia, with multiple fractures. And it can be just devastating because a lot of the times owners have really no idea that they were contributing to their pet's disease. They, they really didn't know. They really thought they were doing what was best. And then it's just, it's very frustrating for us as nutritionists to not be able to reach the masses um, and just emphasize the importance of doing it correctly. Oh, I, I can certainly attest to that when my dog had a TPLO surgery. And of course I felt so badly for her. And as you know, Val, I'm an equine surgeon, so you can roll your eyes lots of ways as an internist and a small animal person, but I was making her homemade chicken and the, I made the gravy and I made the rice and the carrots and I chopped it up and I made it all beautiful. And then of course, as an equine person too, my dog didn't defecate for a couple of days and I was panicked, right? Like every, that's the biggest sign of health in a horse is what comes out the other end. So I called the nutritionist and I was like, she hasn't gone for like, or I called the surgeon. They're like, talk to the nutritionist. I'm like, she hasn't gone for like three days. And, and what are you feeding her? And so I told him the nutritionist said, Lisa, dog food is made for dog foods or for dogs. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, remember when you had kids, rice is binding. Like, what are you doing? Feed your dog what we designed for it. So it's not just the masses as those of us that uh, went down our own sort of rabbit holes of professionalism. Um, so the, the, this kind of dovetails into the next question I have for you. Like it, our, our profession is so vast and so fun. And, you know, I I'm in the surgery side, Sarah's exotics, you're in the, in the internal medicine, small animal, internal medicine. How did you narrow that even further into a passion for nutrition? Um, I don't know. I mean, I get asked that sometimes by students and I don't necessarily know what to say. I always liked nutrition, just even from undergraduate college classes with farm animal nutrition and then getting into vet school. Um, my nutrition teacher became a really important mentor for me all through vet school and then into my residency. And it's just always been something that I've been drawn to. It's, it, it especially dovetails just so nicely with internal medicine because nearly every disease that I see as an internist requires some degree of nutritional intervention. So it just, um, I don't know, it just, it's a good combination partnership, those two specialties for me. Yeah, it, it often comes down to mentorship and exposure, doesn't it? Yeah. And sure. nutrition, as, as that's why this supplement is so important and why we really thank you guys for getting this out here is we do, at least here in most places I know still don't get enough nutrition. It's just that veterinary medicine is so broad. We can't cover everything in depth. So I think this will be really, really important for uh, the AVMA members. So thank you again for putting this together. If you wanted to tell the listeners the main differences, obviously one's home cooked and one's dry kibble, but what are the real basics you touched on? some of the micro nutrition parts earlier, but really like if you're like going to say, no, here's the three biggest differences between home prepared and, and commercially prepared diets. What would you want the listeners to know? Um, it's a good question. And it's, it's a nuanced question with 
it's not it's not a simple answer. So, I mean, the reality is that in the right hands, a home cooked diet can be just as um, nutritious as a, a well prepared commercial diet. And we're again, as an internist for me, for my patients, I'm seeing animals that have various degrees of dyslexia and hyporexia. And um, palatability is a major factor that owners look for to decide if a diet is good or not, right? They want to see their pets eating and they want to see their pets enjoying their food. And a lot of people feel that their pets, I mean, there's a bunch of anthropomorphism that goes into this, but they feel that their pets enjoy the home-cooked diets more a lot of times, which is fine. I want to work with people who want to feed home-cooked diets to their pets, I just can't overemphasize enough the importance of making sure it is complete and balanced because, you know, just putting um, a protein and a carbohydrate and a fat together can get you maybe the macronutrients that the pet needs, that's protein, fat, carbohydrates, but it's not going to get all the micronutrients. And again, that's where um, one of the the differences with our study showed is that a good percentage of the cost of this home cooked diet, of these home cooked diet recipes that we formulated to mimic the veterinary therapeutic commercial diets, um, a, a decent chunk of the cost did come from the um, micronutrient, vitamin, mineral, multivitamin, multimineral supplement. And if you take that away, the cost will go lower, but it will not be complete balanced. So the question was, what's the, what are the three main differences? And I would say, there aren't necessarily going to be tremendous differences if done well, but if done incorrectly, the differences will be the difference between providing complete balance nutrition that can aid in um, managing a disease and keeping a pet healthy versus potentially contributing to illness and um, having potentially severe adverse consequences down the road. So there's a range of costs. I, 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 anyone who does read the paper will see there is a wide range of costs of these different diets. Within the veterinary dry diets, there's a wide range of costs. Within the home cooked diets, there's a wide range of costs because it depends on what ingredients you're using. And my colleagues and I who formulate recipes know, I mean, we've got people who use what we would consider potentially crazy ingredients. You know, uh, you know, we're making shrimp and quinoa recipes for some dogs. You know, that's going to be a far greater cost than chicken and rice. But again, it's 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 more than just those main ingredients that makes a diet appropriate and complete balance. So definitely important points to think about and things that I don't even think I really thought about during veterinary school and talking to clients about different diets. So I agree with Lisa where nutrition is so important. And I do feel that it's a little bit like under educated currently in the veterinary curriculum at many schools. So hopefully in the future, that can be something that's more prominent in the curriculum. So speaking of academia, you're currently a clinical professor at Ohio State. How has this position changed your perspective on educating clients about nutrition? Probably the one thing that I have to be most aware of when I'm speaking to clients is um, to set a good example for my students and my residents. And um, I'm someone who sometimes doesn't always think up through how it's going to sound before it comes out of my mouth. So I have to like practice pausing and thinking and making sure that even if my in my head, all my alarm bells are going off speaking to a client, I need to make sure that what I 
put forward is um, empathetic and respectful and, you know, making sure that we, we both agree that the most important thing here is that we're doing the best thing for the pet, right? So I've learned a lot over the years how to compromise, um, you know, even with something as broad as raw diets, you know, I was sort of taught like raw diets are bad, never feed a raw diet. And at this point in my career, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight with someone about that. I'm gonna have a good discussion. We're gonna talk about pros and cons. We're gonna talk about what the evidence supports. And we're gonna emphasize the most, again, I'm gonna sound like a broken record, but the most important thing in feeding a pet is ensuring it's complete and balanced. Because I can make a, a raw diet complete and balanced, and that's not going to have the same adverse consequences as feeding just a hunk of raw meat to an animal. That is going to have significant, severe consequences. But if I can take that raw meat and make it complete and balanced with vitamins and minerals, and that's what an owner will be most comfortable feeding, I want to work with that person to ensure the pet is getting the best nutrition. That's good advice. And the communication that you touched on can really be applied to all aspects of many different areas of people's lives, both personally and professionally. So thanks for sharing that. You kind of touched on this already, and I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but what is the clinical take-home message from your work that you would like other veterinarians to know? Um, yeah, I, just to reiterate just a few main points is people are going to have questions about feeding home-cooked diets. and veterinarians need to recognize what they know about home-cooked diets and have resources to point clients toward if they are unable to give the clients all the information they want. At the same time, there are not as many veterinary nutritionists practicing in the country who can consult with every single pet owner who has every single question about about feeding home-cooked. And so having some resources available, whether it be this manuscript, um, Dr. Parr's manuscript in the same issue, other well-written um, review articles about feeding, whether it be raw or home-cooked or other unconventional diets, having a few go-to resources to be able to guide clients to is, I think, very valuable. Um, and then knowing that most recipes that people will find online or in books or that they're going to come up with, just knowing that in general, and studies have shown this in dogs and cats, most recipes that people will find are not going to provide complete and balanced nutrition. And so recognizing that it is not just appropriate to say, oh, you want to feed home cooked, go find a, a text a textbook even on feeding home cooked and just go pick a recipe out of that. That's really not even appropriate. It's probably a better start than than setting a client loose with no guidance, but having a few good resources available to say, you know, home cooking is not necessarily going to be the best thing for every pet, especially a pet that is hyporexic from, let's say, kidney disease or inflammatory bowel disease. If a pet doesn't eat all the ingredients in the recipe, if it just picks out the meat and leaves behind the carbohydrates, leaves behind the vitamins and minerals, that is no better than feeding an unbalanced diet. It, it is not complete and balanced to have a pet pick out certain ingredients. So being able to counsel clients on what are the pros and cons of feeding home cooked, recognizing that cost really may not be a huge 
savings point if that is something that a client comes into the conversation as a leading argument toward feeding home coach. This study helps to show that that really may not be a major selling point to feeding a home cooked diet. And that if home cooking is still something, despite all the potential reasons not to feed it, if home cooking is still the, the path that that owner wants to take, it's just really important that it be done appropriately with the guidance of a veterinary nutritionist. Yeah, all really good points. I think too, Val, sometimes that empathy side can get harder and harder as we become more and more and more specialized. Uh, it's hard to listen to somebody to say, oh, I want to do this because I read it on Dr. Google when when you're the authority on something. So I, I, I can certainly uh, empathize with that. Uh, a little more on the personal side. Uh, I know we asked you on your other podcast uh, what what you're never without, but this time Sarah and I have changed it up a little bit. What we'd like to know today is what is the most interesting or the oldest item in your desk drawer? So um, I actually switched offices about a year ago. And so I was able to declutter and clean out nine years worth of crap out of my, my desk and office. And um, two things I found when I was moving was one, um, an introduction to Excel from probably the year 2000. And the other thing I found was, um, a cookbook that I had gotten during veterinary school as a student, um, that had never been cracked open since graduation over 15 years ago. But I, um, when I moved offices last year, I opened it for the first time. And now my my new Thanksgiving tradition as of last year is to make an apple pie using that cookbook that I found in my office from veterinary school. So those are the two oldest things I had in my office. That's awesome. We put together a vet school uh, when I was in vet school, like in the 90s. <laughs> and I still use multiple recipes out of there. You know, they're people's home favorites and they're their family favorites. So I can certainly relate to that. I love that question. I think that's definitely my new favorite question because everyone's answers are always so varied. I don't think we've ever gotten the same thing twice. So it's really fun. We'll have to do some kind of compilation of all the answers. <laughs> but thank you so much, Dr. Parker. Again, we appreciate you joining us for another episode of Veterinary Vertex. You can read Dr. Parker's manuscript in our December JAVMA supplement, Emerging Topics in Nutrition on our journal website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Thank you again, Val. And until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon.